Hey, George Cedarquist here, creator and executive producer of The OBS. I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. And no, I'm not going to ask you to donate money to the show like I usually do. Nope, I'm here to share some big news. Starting October 21st, Opera Box Score is joining the Dallas Opera Network. OBS, TDO, WTF. All right. TDO Network brings a mixture of programming that educates, questions, and furthers classical music and the power of opera. With a diverse group of content creators from the opera industry, each series uniquely engages with its community in ways that go further than the just typical live performance experience. What does that mean for you? Here's how it works. We tape a video, yes, video version of our show that's released exclusively on the Dallas Opera Network on Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Central. A podcast version of the same show can be found on Fridays, wherever you get your pods, and a terrestrial radio version is broadcast on WNUR 89.3 FM Chicago on Monday nights. Now, don't panic. You still get exclusive interviews with opera artists, insights into the opera art form, and all your opera headlines with our team's hot takes, plus a healthy dose of sports talk and fifth grade humor. So, you get three chances to hear the OBS during the week, each week, every week. Hey, we're called America's Talk Radio Show about opera for a reason. Then again, I've been told I have a face for radio for a reason, too. It all starts Wednesday night, October 21st, on TDO Network. All of us on the OBS team will be there. I hope you will, too. Visit DallasOpera.org to check it out. On with the show. Live from Chicago. You're listening to Opera Box School. Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week on America's Talk Radio Show about opera by co-hosts Oliver Camacho and Matt Cummings. All right, on the show this week, one of the first black women to lead an American opera company, Afton Battle goes inside the huddle with Ashley and Oliver. The singer-turned-administrator pledges to eradicate inequalities and spotlight the talents and skills of people of color both on the stage and behind the scenes at Fort Worth Opera. But first, in Chalk Talk, we talk goats, you know, greatest of all time. In the aftermath of tennis goat, Rafael Nadal's victory in the French Open, we throw down on some of opera's goats. And two-minute drill, could a painting save Covent Garden? Lots happening in the sports world, of course. For our listeners in Texas, Dallas Cowboys quarterback Dak Prescott is done for the season with an ankle injury against the Giants, and that will have dreadful effects on my fantasy football team. Matt, you do not follow basketball religiously. No, I don't. It's very true. But you know what I am is a LeBron James stan. I I, I think that he, I mean, like, I he's been a part of public life since I was, I want to say, a freshman in high school. That math about checks out. Um, and just the way that he has continually upped his game, not only literally, but metaphorically, uh, with opening the school in Ohio and putting his money where his mouth is and working on voter get get out the vote efforts in this year's election like he's truly an amazing guy oliver camacho on the show tonight as well any sports we're going to talk a lot of sports in the next i'm saving all my i mean i know something about (laughs) chicago and the white Sox. like we fired our managers something like that so stuff like that is happening but um i don't really care (laughs) (laughs) 
But I do Let's have do- a I do have a sports related good call, so I cannot wait to get to that. So looking forward to it. Let's talk some opera. Chalk talk on opera box score. Rafael Nadal tied Roger Federer with 20 Grand Slam titles by producing a nearly perfect performance against Novak Djokovic in the French Open final yesterday. Nadal added to his own record at Roland Garros with win number 13 on the red clay. Yes, courtesy of a surprising dominant 6-love, 6-2, victory over the number one ranked Joker. It begs the question, though, does opera have a Nadal and a Djokovic, a Federer, relentless athleticism, tying stylish grace? Oliver, tell us about these tennis guys. So let me just start by saying that I have never been a Rafael Nadal fan, but yesterday I was actually cheering for him because he is just so amazing and he is the type of person that does not give up on any point. And it was somehow so easy for him to school the player who has been the leading player for, like I would say, the past 10 years. Novak Djokovic, if he continues on his run, he will easily uh, reach more Grand Slam, achieve get more Grand Slam titles than either Nadal or Federer. Um, he's just impossible to beat right now. That said, Rafael Nadal yesterday played a perfect game and made Novak Djokovic look like he was like the 100th seed or something like that. It was embarrassing for Novak Djokovic. And I just have to hand it to to Nadal. Like, it was so incredible, so powerful, so like masterful, like overpowering, dominant, whatever word you want to use. It was embarrassing for Novak Djokovic. I mean, three sets is pretty embarrassing. (laughs) Nadal is crafty, isn't he? He's just one of those, I mean, ever since he's come onto the scene, he's been one of those players that is willing to abuse his body to just go for every single shot and to make the opponent feel like they can never have an easy point. Like Nadal will chase after every ball and then, you know, hit it back and put a spin on it and make you hit the most awkward shot. And then you get it back into the court and somehow Rafa Nadal will chase that one down too. And like points last forever with him. And it's, it's really amazing, but it also feels like, my God, like, what are you doing? Like, just let that one go. Like you're up, you're up like six games to love. Like you don't have to chase after that ball, you know, but he does anyway, you know? And it just makes me think like, who is the, who are the singers that are out there? First of all, who we think of as greatest of all time. Yeah. But also, there's a definite, like, playing style of Nadal, which is all about grinding. And then there's somebody like Roger Federer, who is much more elegant and has this beautiful technique and and somehow comes off as not having any passion, even though we know that he's working really hard. But he just looks so effortless while he's doing it that you don't really even feel like he you know, that he had to work hard to do what he does. It just it feels like just magical. Just a superhuman technique. Yeah. And then there are people like Novak Djokovic who are like robotic. Like they can hit any <laughs> shot from any part of the field and return any ball. And it just feels like you're playing. It feels like you're playing a computer sometimes, you know. Um, so who are those people? And like those are clearly the three top, you know, uh, 
players in the men's field right now. And yes, I just want to throw it out to our audience. Like, um, we want to draw this comparison. I think it's a it's rife for comparison with uh, opera singers. What do you think about it, Matt? I mean, I think that you can definitely uh, take as a point of comparison, like how you engage with the music that you're singing, whether or not your technique and your vocalism is the most important thing to you, um, which would con- which would conjure to mind some singers like um, Fritz Wunderlich or like. Uh, Alina Garancha would be a modern example of someone who is absolutely so dead set on getting everything lined up that sometimes um, the like fire of a character doesn't come across. And then on the other hand, you'll have someone who just is all passion and the voice comes along almost as an afterthought to that. And both those, both of those performances can be completely stunning in their own right. Uh, they do also like each one has a drawbacks. Like I've been, in performances where I'm like, every note was right and every note was beautiful, but I'm not getting anything from you. I feel like um, we can talk about old singers, uh, older generation singers like Birgit Nielsen, who um, she could do anything with her voice. And in a way it comes off as cold because the technique is just so solid that you don't hear that anything is a challenge. Like Turundot, you know, is one of the hardest roles to sing. You know, it's only 20 minutes or whatever, but it's so hard. And um, I mean, it's a great it's a great recording that she made. It's a great interpretation, but it doesn't sound risky at all. You know, it's like listening her. to or it's like listening to Juan Diego Flores sing Amezami. You're like, well, yeah, you yeah. hit all you hit all nine of those C's. You I know you could do it again and hit them 18 times, but that is in the middle of your voice. So it's really not the same kind of excitement yeah. as listening to like Pavarotti sing them. Well, hey, there's another singer, Pavarotti, who, you know, and we could also talk about as it relates to opera, specializing in a repertoire. And like Rafael Nadal, of his 20 Grand Slams, 13 of them are on clay. 13 of them are Roland Garros. And whereas Novak Djokovic has an all-court game, uh, an, all, an all-surfaces game, and so does uh, Federer, for that matter, but uh, they've found it almost impossible to beat Nadal on his specialty on on clay so you know Pavarotti is a singer who had technique for days but we don't really think of him as a singer who does French repertoire or German repertoire or Com- Spanish repertoire compared, yeah compared to someone like Nikolai Gedda who could really sing in any language known to man and probably some not known to man uh and really sound <laughs> equally at home in any of them but you I don't know if I would really pick him first if I were looking for like a recording of a Puccini opera as opposed to a Pavarotti recording. Right. So Pavarotti really dominated one repertoire, just the way that Nadal really dominates clay. Yeah. And, but he also has like legions of fans, like the way, um, you know, Nadal does. And like, I love Pavarotti. Don't get me wrong. But uh, yeah, it just, you don't, there are certain weaknesses that are very apparent, especially if he ventures outside of his comfort zone. Um, And then there's singers like, in the modern era, like Jonas Kaufman, who is also has a, an all surface sort of approach to, to singing, but he's also very exciting. Like he, not everything he does, I think fits, but he's definitely putting his own, you know, stamp on stuff. And he is dead set on singing all of the repertoire. You know, I, And I would still call him a, more of a Djokovic than an adult, just because he, everything is executed with a plan. There's nothing kind of, um, there's nothing spontaneous about Kaufman singing. 
And you could argue that there doesn't really need to be because the plan that he executes is really great. But um, I that that kind of fire is is much more central to how some singers structure their persona and definitely their performances. And before we turned on turned on the mics, we were talking about some classic matchups like Kalas versus Sutherland, who sang a lot of the same repertoire. Um, where does I mean you S- could even throw Sills in there too as as like a three way a triumvirate <laughs> of goat because they each kind of have their own sort of dimensions where they were stronger or uh, or maybe not quite as proficient. Well then, so how would like Kalas Sutherland and Sills line up with Federer, Nadal, uh, and Djokovic? So for me, I would go I, I would go Sutherland with Djokovic. It's so perfect. It's almost too perfect. Uh, Callis is the fighter. She's she's our scrappy girl from New York who rose up through the Greek resistance to become <laughs> like an international the international icon. That that screams Nadal for me. And and Sills definitely does kind of straddle both worlds in the way that we're describing Roger Federer as well. She's not, you know, she's not a pushover. She's not perfect. She's willing to take risks, but it's pretty lined up. And also she had the personality of the statesman, you know. We learned after she her singer was over. She was a great ambassador for opera, and it's clear that of the three, Roger Federer is the true ambassador of of tennis. Um, whereas Djokovic is very unlikable. I mean, he it's funny because he started out his career being really the Joker. He was like this comedian. He would do impersonations on the court, and he would like be seen in his underwear all the time, and just like he was a funny guy. But now he's become this very clinical, robotic. And COVID super spreader. <laughs> Whoops. So maybe he's in the Netrebko of, of tennis. <laughs> uh, we haven't even talked about the baritones. I mean, Robert Merrill is clearly the jock, you know, and he has that sort of, I don't want to say he's robotic technique, but he's one of those people that just like, yeah. it's like you unhook your jaw and it just pours out of you. <laughs> yes. Whereas you have singers like Disco who surprisingly had some crossover repertoire with a singer like Robert Merrill, but approached it in a much more, you know, erudite, uh, stylized way and got through it and, and actually was very impressive in stuff like, I don't know, Rigoletto, for example, which you wouldn't think of him as a Rigoletto, but in a way it sort of worked. Yeah. It gives you, it gives you other sort of dimensions on a role that you don't necessarily get from like a blood and guts performance. Oh, then there's Corelli. We haven't talked Talking about, about blood and guts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or something like um, Montserrat Caballé, who also had incredible technique. She had like one trick shot that she used whenever she could, which was the floated pianissimo. And she sang everything. Kind of just like her fellow Spaniard, Alfredo Kraus, who sang until he was 942 years old <laughs> and really still sounded pretty fresh even when he was 75 because he had that he had that squeal. Or dare I say Rafael Nadal, fellow Spaniard, and the drop shot that he was using all in the matches uh, yesterday. Well, this, this actually, is, these comparisons are ripe for discussion. So we're putting it out to you, dear listeners, to give us some potential matchups for greatest of all time and that's maybe a segment we'll begin on future episodes and as you know from earlier in this podcast uh, we can explore that on our new platform so yes let us know what you're thinking about 
ideal goat matchups, you can email us at uh, operaboxscore at gmail.com, post on Facebook and tweet us or on IG as well at Opera Box Score. Coming up next, Oliver and Ashley go inside the huddle with Afton Battle. Stick around. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Isolation, yearning, and growth could for many of us be the theme of 2020. On October 17th, Chicago's Third Eye Theater Ensemble presents a double bill documenting the universal yearning to both see and be seen. Juliet Palmer's opera Stitch is told by three women trapped in a sweatshop run by the fast fashion industry, each voice accompanied by the unique buzz of their sewing machines as they strive for survival. To compliment Stitch, Composer, conductor, and friend of the show, Alexandra Enyart, presents her new work, Witness. Witness is an Appalachia-inspired piece for voice and banjo that grapples with what it means to live unseen, as she provides a testament to to transgender identity. Stitch and Witness play virtually at 7 p.m. Central on October 17th. For more information, go to thirdite.com. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Before we get inside the huddle, quick little Bears talk. Bears 4-1, and one, squeaking out a victory over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers on a rare Thursday night game. This, of course, being Tom Brady's new team. 4-1 and one Bears. I can't believe I'm saying it. Oliver Camacho <laughs> was... Inside the huddle with Afton Battle. Well, thanks, um, first of all, to Matt, who gave us a great structure for the interview we had just a few hours ago with Afton Battle. Um, I think it was in our last episode or maybe two episodes ago where we announced the or we read from the press release that Afton Battle was named general director of Fort Worth Opera. She's the first woman to lead the company. She's the first black person to lead the company. And uh, she has a lot to say. And if you saw that press release, it's not polite about what her intent. I mean, she's a very polite person, but uh, she has some goals with the Z. And uh, yeah, it's definitely going to be a shakeup, uh, starting with leaving the festival system and becoming more of a repertory season company, which is a big change for Fort Worth. And we asked her about that. Um, and we'll begin the interview with her talking about her steps to getting to Fort Worth. But I just want to say that after we turn off the microphones, we had some real talk with Miss Battle and she's super prepared. She was super prepared for our questions and she gave a beautiful interview and she said everything that she wanted to say. And then we turned off the microphones and she said some stuff that made me feel like, okay, this is really the right person to be doing this. Not that she wasn't authentic in the interview. She was fantastic, but um, she's a real down to earth person and she understands the challenges that she's about to face. She understands what it means to be a black person working in this industry and in a community that is as conservative as that part of Texas. Mm -hmm. So uh, we are totally, you know, lifting her up and we want to see her succeed and we want to follow her and we want to be able to amplify all of her great work that she's about to do at Fort Worth Opera. The key like 
points, if you will, in my life and career were when I decided to stop singing uh, and chasing that as uh, a career opportunity, which was about 2014, um, and started really focusing, shifting my focus to um, arts administration and had no luck getting into any type of arts administration position, not even the bottom level totem pole. Hmm. Uh, and I had to go, uh, I had to go around the back way really to do that, which was going through higher education. So I have this long career in higher education. Yep. Um, and when I moved to Chicago was really the absolute turning point in my career as an arts administrator. Um, and that was meeting Angelique Power, who's the president of the Field Foundation, who had an organization called Enrich Chicago, which Enrich. was founded to diversify arts, arts administration positions in the city of Chicago. So I came through that program. And as I am a direct uh, result, graduate, alumni, what have you, of that program, uh, and it was through that program that I got my position at the National Museum of Mexican Art. And from there, it literally was onward uh, and never looked back. But it took me, it took a solid 10 years after having graduated with my master's to even find my way back into the arts world. And um, it took, um, another four or so years of really giving it like every single thing that I had to find this sliver of an opportunity that was given to me by uh, a woman who uh, saw the need to diversify arts administration positions in the city of Chicago. Hmm. It's interesting that you came full circle from opera, and then we can see through your resume that you were with Red Clay, which is like a African diaspora dance company, and then Joffrey, which is a you know one of the country's premier ballet companies, and then um, the uh, national the Mexican Museum of Art. <laughs> I don't know which order those things are supposed to be in. And now and now you're and I don't know if I'm missing another important one, but now you're at Fort Worth. One the position I think that definitely positioned me uh for this role at Fort Worth was my time at New York Theater Workshop in New York City, yeah. uh, which is an off-Broadway theater. And fundraising in New York City is it is no joke. It is not for the faint at heart. <laughs> so being a part of that ecosystem and that ethos really as a fundraiser in New York City is what I believe prepared me to step into this role as general director at Fort Worth Opera. So the press release that we read, um, I don't want to say it was it was not a good press release. It was a great press release, but there's something about it that felt very bold. Some things that were said, there's like, things are going to change around here. And we'll start with the one that applies really to the company, you know, as a whole, which is the idea of switching away from the festival format and more towards a stagione format. Can you talk to us about that and, and what necessarily you, you'd want to accomplish by doing that? Absolutely. Um, as a artist myself, who has been in many summer programs, uh, which are festival 
programs, they work for those that they work for. And they work in cities that they work for, like Santa Fe, Chautauqua, Iowa, Maryland, you know. Um, but they don't work for other cities that they don't necessarily work for. And so I think that Fort Worth Opera had a great run at a festival season, um, being able to produce so many operas in one short, you know, four week period of time. But also um, it really stretched the, the, uh, the patrons, if you will, because you had to fit everything into this four week period of time. Mm. And I don't know if you've ever visited Fort Worth, but um, it's not necessarily a summer destination <laughs> as it gets very hot. Um, but also, um, you know, uh, the patrons who are part of the organization and who support the organization, they, they skew demographically by age and by, uh, you know, ethnicity. And so you have everyone who you are looking to host and cultivate relationships and just get them in the theater. You're asking them to come to three to four shows in a four week period of time. And that's a lot for a lot of people uh, financially, time wise. Um, but also the trouble that I find is, is that then you're out of the public eye, if you will, for the rest of the year. Right. They only know about you or, you know, you're, they are only focused on you from April to May. Mm -hmm. And so then the rest of, you know, the 10 months, what do you, you know, you're out there doing things in the community, but there are no performances necessarily happening. So the move from the festival season to the stagione season allows us to have a larger imprint in the arts fabric of Fort Worth. It allows us to establish, you know, these pillars of a company that is offering a repertory, you know, type of, you know, season in the fall and in the spring. And everything that happens in the intermittent part is the added bonus, right? So it's the times that you have opportunity to really engage with the community. It is times that you have opportunity to highlight your resident and young artists. It is times you have opportunity to do children's opera theater. In addition to then when you have something on main stage, you can utilize those main stage singers to do outreach, to do advocacy, to talk to donors and to, you know, sing at parties and all the wonderful things that we singing artists and, you know, musicians all around the world have always had to do. So what I hope to accomplish with that is a firmer and more um, forward thought and sense of Fort Worth Opera as a leading arts organization in Fort Worth that has the stability to sustain ourselves throughout a full year. And that has the aptitude, if you will, to engage an audience for that whole time and not just, uh, you know, April and May. And, you know, you like work everything up to April and May and then you expel all your energy and then like, you know, you have to recover from that. Um, but to be a fully year-long functioning opera company that is bold and embedded in the community and really giving back in that way. That is awesome. Uh, one of the other things that we noticed in, in that uh, 
press release was the phrase eradicating inequalities. Uh, it certainly caught our attention. Uh, here at OBS, we've you know been focusing a lot in the last couple of years on racial and gender equality in, in opera. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how you want to approach these topics when it comes to Fort Worth? And um, have you thought about anything just as a dovetail in you know the COVID era of performances that you see as a, an opportunity to help make some of those changes? Absolutely. Um, Fort Worth Opera will not lead with our words, but we will lead with our actions. Mm -hmm. um, and what that means to me is, you know, there's so many things floating around here. Sign this, pledge this, say this, do this. And yes, words definitely do matter, but our actions are what will be sustaining us through the end of this time in which people go back to being able to do something that reminds them of normal and they forget about everything that they've said and said that they were going to do before then, you know? And yeah. so the action to me is more important than the words because I can say things all day long, but if I don't act on that, then it was just lip service. So we will lead with our actions. And that to me is providing a platform for developing art and artists and music by BIPOC and Black artists, um, providing uh, a platform and a, uh, the space and the breath to develop works um, that are in commission, that are being developed, that need to be workshopped, um, that, you know, putting together a librettist and a composer who need to meet and make magic uh, so that we have these new stories that are being told. Um, it is going into our communities uh, in the Fort Worth, Tarrant County area and embedding ourselves in those communities in a way that is authentic and genuine, surpassing anything else by needing to make ticket sales because you're doing a poor gambess or needing to make ticket sales because you're doing a Spanish-speaking um, opera, but it is going into the communities and making relationships with key community leaders and organizations and civic leaders and leaders of faith, uh, you know, down here in Texas, everybody, everybody's got faith <laughs> and making yeah. those communicate, making those connections and really embedding yourself in the community so that then when you when we leave this COVID time and we're able to gather back in Bass Hall or wherever you know we're gathering, folks will know who we are and they will know what we mean because we've said what we said, we've done what we said we were going to do. Yeah. And then when we ask them to come to our halls and to come inside, they will not only feel welcome, but they will see the representation of themselves in the audience they will see the representation of themselves on stage and they will see the representation of themselves, you know, off stage. And that is a multifaceted thing that you can't do overnight. And you definitely can't do that without having the support of your community whose shoulders you undoubtedly stand on and who you serve. And I think that that is what sometimes we have forgotten as arts administrators and, you know, leaders, and especially in the opera industry um, or in classical music, is, is that we do serve a community. And it is not just your community that buys subscriptions and make philanthropic donations, etc. But we serve the community whose life 
we encompass we take up space in their life. We take up space at their schools by doing school programs. We take up space in their civic areas by building, you know, these giant halls. We take up space anywhere. And so if we're right. not engaging with those folks, when we take up space in their life, then of course they're gonna feel shut out. And so the silver lining of COVID for me is that it has completely removed barriers to access. The yeah. barriers to accessibility of this particular art form have literally been demolished. And so that has pr provided us an opportunity to go into people's homes via these Zooms and all these other things and offer programming for them, mm -hmm. offer programming to their family. It has also provided us an opportunity to engage with artists whom I don't think we would have the opportunity otherwise, because we weren't seeking it, to engage with him. Um, and so, you know, when I said that I am committed to eradicating the inequalities of this art form, it is by taking the actionable steps to ensure that we are recruiting equitably, that we are casting a wide net when recruiting for uh, administrative positions, that we are casting wide nets when asking creatives to be a part of a production team that goes from the director to the scenic designer to the costumer to the wigs and makeup, that we're not just using, you know, everyone who, or, you know, the folks who we are just comfortable and familiar with, but that we're stepping outside of that because we will be and if, if, if I ride out of here on a golden horse, <laughs> Fort Worth Opera will be the people's company. And for that, we will be representative of the community that we serve. Well, outside of diversifying the roster and the administration and the production team, are there any initiatives or um, productions that you can tease that are you know, dreams of yours for your first full season as the head honcho over there? <laughs> well, some initiatives that I can more than tease, I can give you full disclosure, um, are um, we will be doing a series of pop-up performances around Fort Worth in the community, um, going out uh, literally in a pickup truck and a flatbed trailer and popping up at neighborhood um, community centers and parks and recreation centers. But announced, not like a flash mob opera. <laughs> not like a flash mob opera. We're just going to show up announced. at community centers. Like, surprise, it's <laughs> I, opera. I liken it to like a food truck. You know, <laughs> you follow your favorite food truck and you're like, where are they going to be parked today? Um, so doing mm -hmm. that. Also um, an initiative um, that will hopefully enlighten all of our moods come election day. That is a little bit of a tease. I can't, I won't go into full-fledged uh, disclosure. Um, I'll be watching Twitter. I will be watching Twitter. <laughs> do it. And also uh, working with uh, our area county food bank uh, on a project for their families um, during this time of, um, of such great need for so many um, and doing a performance of Stone Soup, which is our children's opera theater. Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of some other things, working out, uh, you know, down here in Texas, there's a lot of space, so you can drive up to a lot of things and sit in your car in the in the in the controlled 
climate of your car <laughs> and partake in some certain activities that happen when you drive up in your car. Uh, and only in places like, you know, Texas and other locations where you have that great space to do that. Um, for my, you know, I've talked about what a season, what our season would look like um, going into the new, the new 21-22 season. And I want to do a mix of traditional works, but also new works, which are incredibly important, um, but also works that push the envelope in the sense of not your traditional um, uh, opera performances, you know, whether it's classical musical theater or uh, jazz uh, types of um, uh, productions, uh, and if they are works that have already been done or not been done, I keep uh, offering my own selfish tribute for uh, a main stage production of Turandot because I love that opera so much, and I think that it would be fantastic to sing. And you know, we'd save on the cost of overhead because I'm already on salary, so I just step on stage and sing. Um, <laughs> Which role, though, is- you or Turandot? Oh, turned off. Oh, okay. <laughs> she, she, me, Afton, is the ice princess. All right. Uh, ah. This voice is turned up for sure. Um, <laughs> well, I sing a mean Leo, so, you know. You oh, call me yeah. L- you know, listen, I could cast turned up hand over fist about three times between all the singers that I know, uh, I'm sure, and all the singers that uh, our artistic director knows. <laughs> but, um, what I can say is that we are diligently working uh, on not only standing up performance opportunities for our patrons in performance venues that we know here in Fort Worth, whether it's Bass Hall or Scott Theater, Dickey's Arena, but also working to stand up performances in an outdoor space that is safe and that is um, welcoming to all and that it has that level of accessibility and not um, uh, uh, creating any type of elitism because, you know, the 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 expense to get into a theater, uh, you know, sometimes is $10 is $10 too much for anyone. Right. Um, so we're working on all of that and uh, still very, very hopeful that um, we will be able to move into the full stagione season in 21-22 and, you know, uh, but also being realistic that it has to happen in a way that's safe for not yep. only our patrons, but our singers and um, all of our creatives involved. Well, since you brought up your singing career and your Turandot ability, um, do, you have, <laughs> do you have any stories for us about particularly inspiring collaborations, maybe with uh, a fellow singing colleague or maybe at uh, a company or with a director that really made you feel like, you know what, like I could do this. I could, I could be in charge. I could really, I could be a leader. I understand what, what this person is doing or, you know, take it where you will. Yeah. Wow. Um, you know, when I was singing, I, w- I had tunnel vision and I was just a singer. I yeah. actually had no clue that what I am doing now was something that I could do because I had tunnel vision. I was singing. Um, It was literally the Met or Bust 
or something in some variation, then it became Europe or bust. Um, but I, I had complete tunnel vision. And I didn't know that I could do what I'm doing now until I got in the world of arts administration and I started to see leaders who looked like me. Uh, and that is, I started to see black women running shit, mm -hmm. bottom line. Yeah. And I thought, okay, I know what our industry is like um, as a classical art form. I, I know who has run it in the past and who, you know, how, what's currently being done. But when I started to see more and more black women in positions of power, running foundations, running huge organizations, I went to a, here, here you go, Oliver. I went to a, uh, a luncheon in New York City for the uh, Women of Philanthropy Network. And they were honoring Ruth Brown who is a black woman and she is the president of the Ronald McDonald House. And she was accepting her award and talked about her career that is yep. extremely epic and beautiful. And she says, the only way that I got to where I am is when I would get in a position, I would make it my duty and responsibility to lift up others as I climbed higher to success. And I thought, you know what, that is what I feel is missing for black women and black people period in this industry is, is that we haven't a been afforded the opportunity to do what some of us are able to do now. And we haven't had the mentorship of others to lift us up while they climb. And it's not that we want to have their position tomorrow, but we want to be able to get to the level that they are at while they continue to rise above. And it is having that mentorship and having someone to say, you know, this is, this is how business is done, or this is how, you know, how things are run, or this is just what to look out for, or these are the steps that, these are the steps that you need to take to get to where you want to be. Right. I never had anyone tell me that. And I had to figure it out on my own. And it was by trial and great error <laughs> that, you know, I got there. <laughs> but, you know, I looked at people like Ruth and I was like, what did she do? I want to do that. And so if I can say like anything to anyone who is in or looking to become an arts administrator, who is a woman, a black woman, a black person, a person of color, is find people like me who are willing, and I am, to mentor others in the ways of getting their foot through the door or to open up the door so that you can get a foot in. And, you know, if you're savvy like I am, all you really need is a big toe in. And once you get a big toe in, then it's over, you know, and you just move from there. So that is like, you know, something that I want to be able to offer myself as a mentor to those who are coming after me because I want, I want to be able to leave my tenure here and hand over this beautiful baby to someone else and say, here, this is yours now. That is just, I'm just so delighted to hear about this. Um, you know, we're, we're talking a lot these days about sort of what's 
what's next what's what's next for the future of our industry uh how are we going to make things work and we've we've talked a little bit about that um can you give us some examples of other folks in you know the visual and performing arts that are kind of giving you hope for the future of our business and these could be music companies they could be non-music arts companies who are the folks that are catching your eye right now oh yes um the folks who are catching my eye um are there's this organization um, called Black Theater uh, Black Theater Coalition? Um, they are catching my eye. Um, they are doing great work, um, and <laughs> it's kind of self-serving because they're catching my eye because um, I've worked with them and <laughs> continue to support some of the work that they do. But within that, uh, you have organizations like Broadway. Um, Broadway Advocacy Coalition, and you have organizations like Muse, and you have organizations um, uh, that are uh, taking this moment that we're in, which is a civil revolution, if you will, and identifying what they do best, and then elevating that. There's a wonderful, wonderful artist, um, director by the name of Owoye Tempo, um, who is brilliant and a great, great artistic mind. And she has some really wonderful things that she is working on in the directing realm of of life. Um, I definitely love to watch and keep up with Karen Slack and what she is doing. She has, this is a woman who has gotten into she has found her niche mm. and, you know, she is a great singer and a consummate artist, but she has really found her platform on how to bring levity and reality and how to bring people together during this time through her conversations. Someone else who has really shaped kind of what I'm looking at in terms of music and in terms of possibilities is, um, Anthony Davis, uh, after he won the Pulitzer, I was like, I want to know everything about Anthony Davis now and go. Um, <laughs> if I could mount a Malcolm X, I would uh, 100%. Uh, if I could mount a Central Park Five, I would um, absolutely without regard. Um, there are also some really amazing women who are out here in the world making things happen. Um, black, white, brown, otherwise. Um, Elorn Meeker is doing some really great things down in San Antonio. Sue Dixon is doing some really fantastic things in Portland. And so watching these women and these artists just make space in their own world has been, you know, really great. And if you all don't follow him, um, Kenneth Overton does a really fantastic show on Monday evenings, but the work that he is doing with uh, Black Opera Film is really spectacular. And the tribute that he put together for Jesse Norman's 75th birthday was so moving and so poignant and um, very much needed and just beautiful and classic and elegant. Um, so yeah. That gave us a big list to, <laughs> to yeah. keep up with. <laughs> so I have, th I have three things. One, yeah. one um, of course, we'll be watching Fort Worth to see 
what you're doing over there. And we know that down the line, people will be saying, oh, Afton Battle was the person who brought me up. And I just, I, I, I attribute my career to her. We know that's in the future. But we are watching Fort Worth. Two, um, Dorothy Rudd Moore's Frederick Douglass opera. We do not have a complete recording of it yet. And it would seem like a company who wants to eradicate the inequality would put that on their list of things to do. A hell of a project, yeah. And also, because she has become a friend of the show, my third thing, uh, Odaline de la Martinez's Slave Opera Trilogy, which was workshopped um, at Opera America a couple years ago. There's a video of the first part of it. But um, yeah. it's it sounds great, and it feels very timely. Uh, both of these operas do. So anyway, let's see if we can make that connection for the future. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I would, you know, we just last week um, did a libretto workshop mm-hmm. that was part of the Frontiers series. And um, in workshopping new pieces by uh, uh, six different librettists. And um, it was it was a wonderful lesson in storytelling because you were, you know, they are just reading the script hmm. and you could hear or let your mind really go into the imagine the imaginative place and either feel or see and hear the musical arc of how some of these things would line up. Yeah. Um, and what I really would love to see Fort Worth Opera do, and we have the power to do it um, and the direction to do it is to take something like our Frontier series and dedicate it to um, uh, BIPOC artists and dedicate it to those creatives. And so it is something that we have in our power to do um, because we have the the power to do anything as people, as humans, but also the platform to give breath and space to those stories that deserve a space and a breath to be told. So whether it's Frederick Douglass or Slave Opera Trilogy or you know some of the beautiful pieces that we heard last week, to bring those to life in their full fruition and then you know, essentially commissioning them for a main stage performance is really, really where I want our Frontiers um, initiative and series to go. Listen, I'm all about being first, Um, not necessarily the first in the race, if you will, but uh, I'm all about being the the thought leader and the industry leader and pushing the envelope and making everyone else catch up. I don't I don't play catch up. Awesome. (laughs) I love it. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Composer and friend of the show Jake Heggie is jumping into the podcasting racket with his new weekly show, Sing Louder. The series kicked off last week with a conversation with Janae Bridges. Upcoming interview guests include Brandon Jovanovich, Ana Maria Martinez, and Ryan Speedo-Green. 
the Canadian opera company has canceled scheduled productions of Carmen, Katya Cabanova, La Traviata, and Orfeo et Eurydice. Earlier this summer, our team made a promise to ourselves and to our audiences to explore every possible option for going ahead with our season, said General Director Alexander Neef. Since then, however, the changing local health situation has made it clear that canceling our original winter and spring programming is the only safe decision for our staff, artists, and audience members. The company plans to move ahead with its planned digital season entitled Opera Everywhere. The Salzburg Festival has announced plans to renovate and expand its venues at the cost of 263 million euros over the next 10 years. The investments are urgent and unavoidable in order to maintain the operability of the festival halls, said the Salzburg Festival president Helga Rabel-Stadler. The massive project has the goal of maintaining the operating functions of the festival for the long term. London's Royal Opera House is to sell a 1970s painting by David Hockney as it seeks to raise cash to get through the worst financial crisis in the company's history. Hockney's portrait of Royal Opera House luminary David Webster will be put up for auction at Christie's on October 22nd, estimated to be worth between 11 and 18 million pounds. Over 400 employees at Opera Nationale de Paris have signed a manifesto against racial inequality calling for the ban of blackface and the use of the n-word in its performances the letter also calls more attention the letter also calls for more effective internal anti-discrimination policies incoming general director alexander neef there he is again has already taken the step of requesting a report on the race-related issues within the ballet section of the company Live staged opera is making a gradual return in Germany, with recent performances of The Ring Cycle in Berlin and Munich's Bayerische Staatsoper moving forward with a revised season of staged operas and ballets. In an article in The Observer, friend of the show Harry Rose speaks to several American singers based in Germany about the dissonance between what's been going on in the United States and the altered but rigorous resuming of their work abroad. Due to an ongoing battle with cancer, Calgary Opera's Bramwell Tovey has stepped down from his position as the company's artistic director. The company is seeking out interim artistic leadership while the current managing director and CEO, Heather Kitchen, continues to lead the company's operations. Don't worry, no spoilers here. This week's episode of HBO's Lovecraft Country closed in a truly operatic fashion with composer Laura Carpman's epic requiem providing the soundtrack. The LA Times detailed this week how she enlisted the poetry of Sonia Sanchez and friend of the show, Janai Brugger, to commemorate not only the events depicted on screen, but the enduring struggle of black Americans against violence. Exit stage right, soprano Ruth Falcon, who sang four roles at the Met between 1989 and 1996, including Turandot, has died at 77. She also appeared at Covent Garden, Paris, Vienna, Munich, the Deutsche Oper Berlin, Teatro La Fenice in Venice, Teatro Colón, Opera de Monte Carlo, and the Aix-en-Provence Festival. The Canadian soprano Erin Wall has died after three years fighting against breast cancer. She leaves a young family and friends the world over. A finalist at the 2003 Cardiff Singer of the World competition, Erin was snapped up by Chicago's Lyric for leading roles including Marguerite in Faust, Donna Anna in Don Giovanni, Freya in Das Rheingold, and much else. She made her Met debut in 2009 and commanded roles at La Scala, Munich, Vienna, and Paris. And on this day, October 12th, in 1745, it was the first performance of Rameau's Les Fêtes de Poligny in Paris. 
1785, it was the first performance of Salieri's La Grotta di Trionfo in Vienna. In 1872 was the birth of English composer Rafe Vaughan Williams. In 1887, Dame Nellie Melba made her debut in Brussels as Gilda in Rigoletto. In Rigoletto. That was her operatic debut. In 1928, Spanish soprano Pilar Lorengar was born. In 1935, it was the birth of OBS Hall of Famer Luciano Pavarotti. That one is for you, Toby. In 1944, it was the birth of Dutch harpsichordist and conductor Ton Koopman. I don't think he's ever conducted an opera, but I'm sure he played in the pit of one at one point in his career. And in 1998, this one's for Weston, the first performance of Philip Glass's opera, The Voyage at the Met. And that's your two-minute drill. Opera class. Sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score. Before we get into the nitty gritty, let us know what we were listening to just then after the two minute drill and also right after the Afton Battle interview. Well, we just heard a bit of Aaron Wall singing Frühling from the four last songs. And uh, if I talk about it, I probably will not be able to continue with this interview. Um, It was devastating. We got the word. So tragic. We got the word on Friday and I just saw. I mean, because she had such strong ties to Chicago, she was a member of the Ryan Opera Center, what used to be called the Lyric Opera Center for American Artists. But at any rate, the same thing. And, uh, you know, she sang a lot of leading roles here in Chicago. And um, also she was beloved at Canadian Opera Company. I think just last year she was singing Arabella to acclaim. Um, Really beautiful for Strauss and Britton and Mozart. She just had one of those voices that just had that cut that silvery cut that sounded so feminine and just soared over the orchestra. Beautiful, beautiful singer. And she talked about her struggle with cancer uh, two years ago. Uh, She was diagnosed when she was, I think, 42. And uh, she talked about what it was like to get back on stage and, you know, with her short hair and with wigs and with trying to get back into running and doing the New York marathon for the first time after going through chemotherapy and it being her slowest time ever, but feeling so grateful that she did it anyway. And, uh, we also heard, um, Afton battles sing a little bit of Dichtora Hala from when she was a singer. And as you heard in the interview, she will get up one day and sing Turandot if she needs to, <laughs> if, if her Turandot ever calls in sick, she's there. She's there. It gives new meaning to the show must go on in Fort Worth. <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely. Alexander Neve getting two shouts out in the two minute drill that he's a busy bee moving from Toronto to Paris. Single-handedly to... keeping the opera co- community alive. <laughs> There yeah, was a time you... um, back in another show I, I do about opera uh, when we talked about Placido Domingo and how many jobs he had and how could 
any opera company expect to get Placido Domingo to do anything for them if they knew that he had all these jobs? And I feel that's sort of going on with Alexander Neef right now. Like, is I mean, this I'm was sure not on great. purpose, though. Domingo took yeah. on all those roles because he wanted to be Mr. Important. But this was scheduling conflicts that he did not plan for, if I remember the details correctly. Yeah. Well, for Neef, these both these things are being thrust upon him. The coronavirus pandemic is being thrust upon him. And 400 employees, quite rightly, signing a manifesto against racial equality, but that is also being thrust upon him. So the guy's got his work cut out for him, obviously. Will he rise to the challenge? I don't see why he wouldn't. He at least has the right attitude of wanting, uh, of listening to these, listening to these uh, demands. Complaints, yeah. Complaints. And... Uh, setting a, a panel of experts up to investigate the the complaints that they received about the about the ballet side of the Opera Nationale. So it's things are at least already in motion. I mean, I say that with a heavily cultivated skepticism about progress after living in 2020. But you know, there's something to be said for taking the steps forward that need to be taken. Well, progress is happening in many different areas and, and operating slowly but surely except in terms of the pandemic not really here right live stage opera making a return to germany performances in berlin and munich I how know. great to see harry rose that's, writing about this that's really the only reason why i wanted to include that story is because think about it like when we were a brand new show back whatever five years ago he was still the opera team he was still in high school yeah. And now he's getting published in like the Observer and whatnot. So, um, friend of the show, Emily Pogorelts makes an appearance in the, in the <laughs> yes. article as well. But he makes, yeah. I mean, he makes a good point in the article, which is look, the Germans having, and I've lived there, right? Like, man, they know how to follow the rules. They make the yeah. rules, they follow the rules. Why would we think that an opera house would be no different? And what is so inspiring to me about that, the work that's happening there now is that. Work is being made within new parameters, and no one seems to be panicking about it. When I talk to my colleagues, when I talk to other directors in this country, some are panicked, are crippled by the new parameters. And my response to that is like, you need to be creating regardless. And I feel like that's what's happening in Germany when you look at Harry Rose's article. Well, they were able to implement the the lanyard system that had such great success in Salzburg of whether you're from on, on a scale from white to red levels of exposure. And the, uh, all the singers talk about how, you know, you have to trust that everyone is doing what they have to do. But I guess that's easier to do when you're living in a country of people who look at jaywalking people uh, as though they have two heads <laughs> there's nothing like a good lanyard to really help sort of sort everything out i know it's not the only country that does this but i remember what the first time i was in germany and i was writing the public transportation and you didn't have to you know buy a ticket or whatever they just would be assumed that you paid your uh you paid your your fee your your your, uh, your fare and nobody checked and um, so you just got on the bus and you wrote it. And if somebody came around and asked to see your fare, you would show it to them. But uh, it would be so easy to not pay your fare. But I think it would be shocking, you know, if somebody didn't, you know. You, you get a pretty hefty fine if you get caught without one is part mm. of the reason why. I think it's something like it, it, it was in the neighborhood of like 100 to 150 euro when I was over there. <laughs> the story about 
Covent Garden auctioning off this uh, painting by David by David Hockney. It's of David Webster, who ran the Royal Opera House in, in post-war Britain into the 70s. It's a slightly old lead at this point, but I think it has some mileage to be discussed. I I was surprised by this. Genuinely surprised. Well, everybody's looking to it, make a buck right now it's, somehow. It's part of their strategic plan is, is selling off some of their assets in order to keep the hall afloat, which I honestly didn't think that the United Kingdom was going to allow to happen. Like, in over here in the States, like... Of course, there's no way that 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 we would have, you know, financial solvency on the government dime. You know, we can't even get a coronavirus bill passed. But right. uh, over there, where it's such a greater source of national pride, and there has been a history of investment in the arts to to have this kind of a sink or swim approach to getting through the crisis is it's shocking. I'm trying to imagine the. Uh... The chandeliers at the Met or the Chagall paintings being sold. That's what well, the Chagall to, paintings. They did. Yeah. I mean, they had to put them up as collateral for a loan in the last financial crisis. <laughs> yeah. I'm. That, that, is, very, that is very American. <laughs> oh yes. Oh, that's not surprising. Oh no, 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 no. That's not surprising at all. So have, have I? Th- I, I just want to say that I have not seen the current episode of Lovecraft Country, probably by the you time... You took the words right out of my mouth. Probably Oliver. by the go time ahead. we go, we put this up on the internet, I will have seen it. Uh, I'm but still I'm, behind. No spoilers. I just I started it. I am crazy about that show. And the casting is incredible, top to bottom. And you think that you don't need to learn more about a certain character, and then they get their own episode. And you're like, oh my God. I'm so glad they did that episode. You know, it, It's just been such a treat to watch the show. Not, I haven't loved every single one of them, but I've loved each one enough to make me want to watch the next one. And Jonathan Majors. Is that who you were I talking about it, when you said top to bottom? <laughs> I think it must be in his contract that he has to be naked in every episode. And I'm not mad about it. <laughs> I mean, if you put in the work, you would want to. Wouldn't yeah. you want to? But great to have uh, Janai uh, on HBO. She belongs there. That's awesome. It is so awesome. I'm surprised you have HBO, Oliver. Why would you be surprised about that? I'm a cultured guy. He likes the finer things. Yeah. yeah. No, no, I know your culture. I just, I don't know why. I've, I've, uh, do you have it like through a cable package? Or you I have a TV. Yeah, I watch Tennis Channel. I watch, you know, ESPN when tennis is on or when there's gymnastics on. <laughs> Duh, you're putting me to shame. Yeah. No. <laughs> Bef- before we wrap it up, Jake Heggie getting into the podcasting biz. Yeah. Um, good well, luck, he... good luck, sir. Is all I can say. <laughs> and you've made a dreadful mistake. Let's hope it doesn't come to fisticuffs. <laughs> but he's getting Janai, uh, Janae. Uh, he's getting Janae as an interview guest, and um, that I'm a little bit salty about that one. But um, we've had other guests, so we've even had Jake Heggie on. So we're we're happy about this. Ah, uh, yes, the famous missing show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right, gentlemen. Last call before we wrap it up. Ruth Falcon is a singer that I've always known about and I thought has been an incredible voice. And unfortunately, she doesn't have a lot, doesn't have a lot of studio recordings. I don't think she has any studio recordings. A lot, all of them are pirates and whatnot. But she's definitely a, a singer who does not get her due credit. And, and uh, we'll and have to investigate. A, and that. had a substantial second career as a teacher. She was on faculty at Manus, where several friends of mine studied with her. 
Yeah, that one happened today, as or that one was announced today, and um, I see all the tributes coming out on Facebook as I did on Friday for Aaron Wall. Ugh, cancer. All right, let's wrap this show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call to take you home. Before I do that, the quick fantasy football update. Ashley not here to tell us about her travails and her woes, but um, at the top of the show I mentioned that Dallas Cowboys quarterback Dak Prescott has had season-ending ankle surgery, and of course he's one of the quarterbacks on my fantasy football team, so that's not looking good. That's that's going to be a bad call for me. I do have a good call as well, but I'm going to go last. Matt Cummings, what do you got? Uh, in order to get into the Halloween spooktacular season early, uh, I turned on The Haunting of Bly Manor on Netflix, and surprise, surprise, it's the turn of the screw in TV show form. Hmm. So check that out if you're looking for a new uh, speculative backstory about what all of those ghosts were doing in that manor. <sighs> Oliver Camacho. I just want to thank Ashley for taking time out of her day. She wasn't available to be on the podcast today, but she did carve out a little bit of time so that she could accompany me on the interview with Afton Battle. And I do have a sports-related good call, and I'm going to read a tweet from Danelle Leva, who was on the 2012 uh, men's gymnastics and 16 men's gymnastics team. Was it 14 and 18? I forget. Whatever the Summer Olympics are. No, 12 and, and he's 16. One of the, you're right. Yeah, he's one of the most beautiful men to walk the face of the earth. Uh, And uh, he tweeted this yesterday. For a long time, I've known that I wasn't straight, but because of certain very personal reasons, I always rejected that side of me. Earlier this year, I finally understood that I'm bi slash pan, still trying to figure that one out. But I also realized that as of now, at least, I'm not attracted to cis men, cisgendered men, he means to say. That comes with those personal reasons I just mentioned. But I felt that it was time for me to finally share this with you all. As most of you can imagine, this is absolutely terrifying. And he goes on. uh, But it was National Coming Out Day yesterday. And I have fantasized about this child, this young man, (laughs) for a long time. Since 2012. He's so gorgeous. And uh, when I read that yesterday, I was like, no, no, no. And yes, uh, so um, welcome, welcome to the club, Danelle. Uh, if you need me to change anything about myself, you know, to fit more in your your taste, I, I think I could do that. My good call. Uh, Dallas Opera has launched its first official video streaming event. It's Carmen. It's available through November eighth. It's free. You can get it on DallasOpera.org. It's the David McBicker production from. November, actually, 2018. And I watched some parts of it. It's really well done. It's like great audio, good camera angles. The production, for my tastes, is on the traditional side. I mean, that is Mick Vickers' aesthetic. Uh, But it's really well done. And I encourage you to. It's got Stephanie Dustrak and uh, Stephen Costello in the cast, right? That's that's, that's exactly right. Yeah, Pierre Vallée conducting. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at normwaddell.com, N-O-R-M-W-U-O-O-D-E-L.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. 
on Facebook. Search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Opera Box Score. This podcast version of our show available wherever you get your pods. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score would be totally cool. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For our guest, Afton Battle, and your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave from the Inside the Huddle segment, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about Opera Goats. We're back with an all-new show on Wednesday, October 21st, 9 p.m. Central, when we kick things off on the Dallas Opera Network. You get more opera headlines, more hot takes, more fall color. Join us at dallasopera.org.